Well, let's go ahead, please, and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're continuing our series in the book of Ephesians. If you'd like a, a title for this morning, it's Diversity Within Unity. We're going to concentrate on verses 7 through 16 of chapter 4, but in order to just enjoy its context, we're going to read all the way from verse 1. It reads as follows. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunningness, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From her home, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Lord, help. Amen. That's all we've got time for. So let's press on. You know, on our TV screens... There are many things that, that, that can be a little bit scary, and certainly as a child, there were many things that I did find a little bit scary. So Doctor Who, the Daleks, that was shocking. That was, that was really scary detail. The Triffids, I don't know whether that arrived over here, but they were, oh, they were horrible little things, just plants that then grew and they came into your house, and it was shocking. But the worst for me as a child, the worst thing that I ever saw was the Borg, or oh, the Borg. The Borg were a Star Trek pseudo-race, and they were just horrendous. They would basically assimilate lots of different races, assimilate lots of different alien races, and in doing so, they would bring them all together into a collective. And so you'd see different races of different parts, and they, they would basically take them over as a race and as a culture. They would add different cybernetic things to them, so they'd be half robot, half human, or half robot, half Klingon, or whatever it used to be. 
and, and then as a result of that, as they assimilated them and took them over, the whole point was that this then race, the Borg, sought to wipe everything else out. They sought to wipe different cultures out, different ways of thinking out, different lifestyles, different behaviors, and they sought to take everybody over so that everybody would think the same and dress the same and behave the same and enjoy the same culture. What they believed was the perfect race. Now, the whole premise was that resistance was futile. You're never going to be able to stop us. And so they would pursue people, and they would take them over, and there was really not a lot that you could do. But their whole point then was that they would wipe different cultures out and gather together then as one, one mind, one belief, one lifestyle, one behavior, and all stand together. And they would then be overseen by what was called the hive and the great queen. And the great queen because of things that would be implanted into the Borg's minds, would then control all the different earthlings. And that's how it was. I, I, that used to freak me out. Not only the thought of like actually somebody getting you and making you half robot, that seemed horrendous. But the thought of somebody taking over your body and then making you all think the same and act the same and be the same, that would just scare me. It was just a, a horrible concept. And the reason why I mention that is because I think for some of us, when we hear the word unity in the Bible, we think of the Borg. We think of uniformity. See, I think when we, when we wrongly misunderstand unity, instead of hearing unity, what we actually hear is uniformity or sameness, a conformity. And we start to then hear everything through that, through that angle. So we start to hear things in Sovereign Grace Church or any other church and we start to make two and two equaling 149. You know, things, we just start to get things very wrong. And so we hear a message like last week. And at the end, we just gave out 10 things to help us cultivate humility. Now, you will have noticed they weren't in the text. So they're just pastoral advice. They're, they're words of wisdom, I trust, to help us cultivate humility. But do we all have to take all of those 10 and apply them this week to be a part of the Sovereign Grace family? Of course not. That's just suggestions. They're just ideas. We're not into uniformity. We're into unity. Do we all have to outreach in exactly the same way in this local church? No, because we're not the Borg. There's a diversity within our unity. Do we all have to parent in exactly the same way in Sovereign Grace Ministries? Uh, no, I trust not, because we're not the Borg. There's a diversity within unity. Do we all have to dress the same and date the same and pursue godliness in exactly the same way? Do we all have to adjust our quiet times to be exactly the same? Absolutely not, because we're not the Borg. There's diversity within unity. And yet I think so often we can make the mistake when we hear unity of panicking. Dave Taylor is the queen. They're building a hive. They're taking us over. Look... <laughs> I don't want to be a queen, and there's no hive, and it's not the case. And the reason why I know it's not the case is because that is exactly what Paul speaks to in this text. See, here from verse 7 onwards, Paul is taking a lot of time to explain to us that we are not the Borg. What he's going to, he's going to explain to us is that their diversity is a really good thing. It's a very important thing, and the reason for that is because diversity within unity leads to maturity. You see, since the start of Ephesians, Paul has been stressing the importance of unity. In chapter 1, verse 10, he introduces us to this whole concept by saying that it is God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, 
things in heaven and things on earth. He's talking about those last days, those days when he returns and that it is his plan to in those days unite all things, to bring all things together, things on heaven and indeed things on earth. In chapter 2 and then 3, he talks to us at some length about how God is reconciling us to one another and uniting us together then in bodies, in the body, but then in expressions of the body in the context of the local church, people from different lifestyles, different cultures, different backgrounds, different philosophies, different ideas, different strengths, different weaknesses. Now he's bringing us together in diversity within the context of unity. Well, at the start of chapter 4, then, as we saw last week, Paul is then eager for us to maintain the unity. And so he urges us to do that accordingly, having been given the unity by God, be eager to maintain it. Do all you can in gentleness and in humility and in patience and in bearing with one another to maintain the unity that God, by his all-empowering grace, has given you. Paul has been championing unity all the way through. But in verse 7 onwards, he starts a caveat to help us see that I don't mean uniformity by unity. I don't mean that we all do the same, that we're all exactly the same. He starts to go on a caveat to explain to the congregation, this isn't the Borg. This isn't uniformity. In fact, unity does not in any way equal sameness. See, that's why he starts verse 7 with the word, but. He's just spent time talking about unity, but he wants to take us on a caveat to help us see the difference between unity and diversity. And the message that he is going to give us is simply this. Diversity within unity leads to maturity. See, diversity in a local church is not only a good thing, it's vital. It is absolutely vitally important that a church be very diverse in the way it thinks through things and in the way it is. Why? Well, because it's diversity within unity that leads to maturity. Something that Paul is going to take the time to explain to us that is so important. And so to help us see this concept, Paul directs our attentions in these verses to spiritual gifts. In other places in the Bible, it calls them grace gifts. But they're just gifts given to us by God, lavished upon us as individuals. And with those in focus... Paul develops his thinking in clear, easy, but, but clear sections. First section, he talks about the giving of the diverse gifts. In the second section, he talks about the development of the diverse gifts. And then finally, he talks about the purpose of the diverse gifts. So let's crack on with the first one, the giving of the diverse gifts. Let's read verse 7 again. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. You know, it's common in, in our tradition, and it's, it, it's a true statement, that grace equals unmerited or undeserved favor. And it does. It's exactly what grace means. It is unmerited and undeserved favor. We were objects of God's wrath, but now we're objects of his favor. How is that? Well, because of his grace. Because he's lavished his grace upon us. He's saved us by his almighty grace. Did we deserve it? No, it wasn't earned. It was unmerited and undeserved, but he lavished it upon us. 
So grace is unmerited or undeserved favor in a very narrow sense. But sometimes as you study the Bible, you realize that the writer himself is importing onto that word a a function of grace, something to do with grace, but something that God has actually put on us as an expression of his unmerited or undeserved favor. And that's what he's doing here. You see, the context of it doesn't really make sense. But undeserved favor was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Yes, but he's talking about grace gifts. But undeserved favor, namely gifts that were given to you through grace, have been given to each one of us. And so grace in this verse equals grace gifts. And we know that because of the context. We know that because that is exactly what he goes on to talk about now at great length. The gifts of grace. See, the point of grace gifts, the spiritual gifts that have been lavished upon you, here's the incredible thing about them, and it's something I just absolutely love. They're the spoils of a victorious king. How do I know that? That's what it says in verses 8 through 10. See, verses 8 through 10 can appear, I think, a little perplexing when you first read them. It says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on the high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That is one of those verses. I don't know whether it's just me that does it in the world, but maybe there are others. There's certain verses in the Bible that you read over and you think, that's very nice. I have no idea what it means. But let's go straight on to the next verses. So I'm sure it means something really important, but I'm not quite sure on the face of it what it really means. So I'm loving verse 7, and then we could, oh, let's go to verse 11, where it's all going to make sense again. But verses 8 through 10 are very important. Because you see, what Paul is doing wonderfully and very creatively, he is pointing us back to a line in Psalm 68. You see, Paul actually believes, and I think he is absolutely right, that Psalm 68 is fulfilled in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And so in doing this, he's pointing us back, he's painting a picture of something that to us is very unfamiliar, but it's something that this ancient Greco-Roman world would know very well. You see, if you were living in Ephesus in the first century, you would be very well acquainted with the picture that Paul is painting here in verses 8 through 10. You see, in ancient times, if you were a king of a nation, that meant that you were responsible, obviously, to lead your army. And you should do that. That's what King David was doing and should have been doing all the time. That's why when he got into that situation with Bathsheba, it says right at the start, during the time when the kings were at war, i.e., what the heck were you doing still at home? You know, the point is, he should have been gone. Kings would lead their armies in war. And what would take place is this. If I was a king of this nation, and I knew there was another nation that was going to attack this nation, we would basically beat them to the punch. So we are going to raise our army, and we are going to go after them. They're going to come and get us, so we're going to go after them. So we are going to make war with them. Now, if we lose, then we're stuffed. Basically, they come and they take our wives and our children captive and they plunder our goods and that's the way it worked in ancient times. If we win, we plunder their goods. We take all the gold, we take all the silver, we take all the woods, we take all the cows, we take all the animals and then we take it back to our own kingdom, our own nation. Now imagine the scene in ancient times. A king has just won the war and he brings the spoils of the war back. He's not only saved his own family and his own nation from sure and certain captivity, he's brought with him the spoils of another kingdom. He brings them back 
And what would take place is that king would then ascend the throne in a ceremony. And as he ascended the throne and sat on the throne as the victorious king, what would he do? He would take the spoils from the other nation and he would lavish it on his own nation, all those that he's caring for, all those that are part of his kingdom. That's what Paul is referring to here in verses 8 through 10. And what he is saying is, you know what? That's Jesus. He's painting a picture of what happened in the ancient world and saying, that is what Jesus has done for you. He has descended for you. One who is at the right hand of the Father, dwelling in perfect, joyful unity with the Father and enjoying the Father and the Holy Spirit's presence, descended from heaven to earth born into the squalor of a borrowed stable. He then lived a sinful, sinless life. He then died upon a cross and rose again, and then he ascended to be at the right hand of the Father, taking his seat on the throne, the place of authority over his kingdom, made up of Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave and free. And as he ascends on that throne, he takes the gifts that the Father has given him, the plunder, And he launches it out onto his people, his subjects, the people who he cares for, the people that are his body, the men and women that make up church. It's pretty cool, eh? That is the glorious picture that Paul is painting for us here in verses 8 through 10. He's showing us that this is exactly what God has done through us through the personal work of Jesus Christ, our King our victorious king. So your gifts that you have, that each one of us have, they're the spoils of a victorious king, Jesus, which he has lavished upon us. Now, it's important that we realize that these gifts are indeed many and varied, okay? They're not one size fits all gifts. I remember, <laughs> I remember the first time I went on a plane, and it was actually going to America with, with Pete Greasy. I'd never been on a plane before, and we, we sat down, or we're on our way to our seat, our normal seats, and unfortunately somebody was sitting in our seats. I thought, this is, this is very awkward. Two to a seat is, is not going to be helpful. So we told the steward, and they said, well, unfortunately this is full, so you're going to have to come up to business class. Okey-cokey then. So off we went to business class, and we sat in business class, and we were the last ones on the plane, so we're now seated in business class, and I'm just thinking, this is the way everybody flies, isn't it? I mean, I have no idea. I've never been on a plane before, so oh, I'll turn the massager on, and this, this is very nice. So, so we're sitting there, and, and then the lady, the stewardess, came around with a goodie bag for me, and I thought, this is so exciting. It had socks in it. It had like a toothbrush, had a pen. I was so excited about this bag. I'm thinking it must be because it's my first time on a plane that they're just, they're just acknowledging that and, and encouraging me as I go. So I get the goodie bag and I'm really excited about it. I get my pen out. I don't even want to write something. I put the socks on just because they're free. And then I look out and I notice, hang on, everybody's wearing the same socks. And, and everybody's got a pen. And in fact, everybody's got exactly the same gift. I felt completely robbed. You know, I just thought, this is just shocking. I thought I was special, and now I'm just, no, this is the book. This is the book. We can come to gifts like that and think that we all have exactly the same, that it's just like United Airlines in business class giving, thank you, you become a Christian, here's your bag, here's your bag. No, that's that's not the way it is. As the king distributes his spoils, they are very wide and they are very varied. And we learn that in Scripture. There's several lists of spiritual gifts in the Bible. So if you study Romans 12, 
1 Corinthians 12, there's actually two gifts in the same, uh, two gifts of list gifts in the same chapter. 1 Peter 4, another one. And as you study them, you realize these gifts are, are very varied and very diverse by very nature. They're very, they're very spread out. And so you realize a couple of things. You realize that there's absolutely loads of them. And there is. So even if you look at the ones that are actually mentioned, there's loads. So there's everything from preaching to encouragement, from help to administration, from healing to serving, from speaking to acts of mercy. There's a whole gamut and range of gifts that God gives us as the spoils of the king. And so you realize that real quick. But as you study them, you also realize something else. These lists are not exhaustive lists. And they're not meant to be. All the spiritual gifts list of the Bible, they're not exhaustive. They're not just saying, well, here's the gifts. Pick one. You must have been given one. No, they're illustrative of the type of gifts that God gives us. So they are indeed gifts. But there's also a whole range of other gifts that aren't mentioned. And that's the very reason that Paul is structuring his words in those chapters that way. Just because they illustrate. See, the gifts that have been lavished upon us as a local church, if you just isolate us, they are very wide, very diverse, and very varied. And it's important that we realize they're not only many and varied. It's important we realize right now, folks, you've been given one. You, not the person sitting next to you, not the family member, but you. You have been given a gift by the Lord. Jerry Bridges, in talking about spiritual gifts, defines them this way, and I just found it so helpful. He says, a spiritual gift is an ability given by Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit to enable us to perform the function or responsibility God has given us in the body of Christ. Let me read that again because I think it's helpful. A spiritual gift is an ability given by Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit to enable us to perform the functional responsibility God has given us in the body of Christ. The gifts are many and varied. You all have one. And he's given you that gift to perform a specific responsibility and function in the building up of the body of Christ. See, maybe you're here today and you've just always thought of your gifts as natural. You know, I've I'm very administrative, but so is my dad, and so is my granddad, and so that's not a spiritual gift. It's just the way I am. Not according to Scripture. See, according to Scripture, you have a king that lavishes his gifts upon you. And here's the thing. That king is sovereign. He put you in the families that he chose for you. He put you in the school that he chose for you. He gave you the desire to pursue an education in a way that he chose for you. He gave you the opportunity to study at university where that has taken place. He gave you opportunities to bump into the right person at the right time that would help develop a specific gift in your life. God is sovereign. And so any idea of our gifts just being unnatural, well, we give ourselves too much credit. They're not natural. They're God-given. Given as spoils by the king. And then upon becoming a Christian, the Holy Spirit then empowers those gifts. And he wants us to use them then for the sake of the body. For the sake of the building up of the whole. So if you've thought of your gifts as natural, please stop. They're given by the king. They're gifts given by God. Maybe you've made the mistake of defining church as the Sunday service. And you've thought wrongly as Sunday morning is church. No, it's not. Sunday morning isn't church. This is the church. We're the church. 
And so I think sometimes we can wrongly think of, well, Sunday morning then is where I must use my gift. Not necessarily. You know, it's horrible when you realize, but I can't play an instrument and, you know, I don't really think speaking is for me and I can't cook and, oh, I'm just so not gifted. I don't have a part to play in the church. Hang on. Church is way more wide than a Sunday morning. Church is people. And so I think we make the mistake of viewing church very narrowly. There are a whole range of needs when you realize that church is family. Church is an army. Church is a hospital. There are things that need to be done in churches that are very wide and very varied, not only on a Sunday, but 24-7 outside of this context to make a body function and to make a body grow. Maybe you've thought wrongly that you don't have a gift that you were the one that accidentally got left out, that as the king sat on the throne and threw out the gifts, everybody else picked up one, but you weren't quick enough, and you oh, I I didn't didn't appear to, to get one. You know what you did? You did get a gift, and here's why I know, verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us. Okay. So we've all been given gifts. So that's point one, the the. the giving of the diverse gifts. They're God-given, they're the spoils of the king, and they are many and they are wide in variety. Number two, the development of the diverse gifts. That's what we see here in verses 11 through the start of 12. Paul says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I like that. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. You see, Paul is going to make a very subtle but very important shift now. Up until this point, he has been talking to all of us. He's been addressing everybody in the room and explaining to us that gifts have been given to each one of us personally by God as individuals. He's gifted every single one of us. But now he's making a subtle shift to explain to us that God has also given us gifts corporately. He's given gifts to us corporately as a church, as local bodies. What are those gifts? I'm excited. Well, they're people. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. God has given gifts to the church, and they are people, leaders. You know, I think we can get really distracted at this point, and it depends your background and your, where you've come from. If you've come from not being a believer, then you're pretty cool right now because you think, oh, I'm not quite sure what they are. That's probably the best way. But if you've come from different backgrounds and different churches and different movements, this can often be a huge bone of contention in terms of, well, where are the apostles and prophets today? Where are the evangelists? Are pastors and teachers one and the same, or are they different? You know what? I think that can be such a red herring and such a distraction. And I'm not saying there's not a time to study them and and spend time on them. From my perspective, I think apostles and prophets are talking about the Old Testament apostles and prophets that then carry through to the New. I think evangelists and pastors and teachers are still current, but I think evangelists and pastors and teachers, evangelists are different, but pastors and teachers are the same. But I don't want to get distracted on that because I think it's unhelpful and it will not aid us to understand what Paul is saying here overall. This is what I do want you to realize. What Paul is referring to here is that God has given leaders to the church. He's given spiritual leaders to his body, those that have been called by God, 
those who have been appointed by God, those who have been assessed by the local church and then anointed by the local church for the task of leading them, those who God has called out and then equipped, what are they then to do? Here's what they're to do and here's the point. They're to equip the saints for the work of ministry. What is a pastor's role? Well, here's one of his main roles. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. See, here's something very, very important that you must, you must, must grasp this. If you don't remember anything else that I say this morning, that's okay. But do remember this. You are all in ministry. Every individual in this room is in ministry. That's why for me, I'm not a big fan of being called a minister. And so people say, oh, you're a minister. Um, yes, I am. Are you a Christian? Yes. Well, so are you. You know, we're all in, we're all, we're all ministers. Ministry by very nature simply just means to serve or to attend to the needs of others. That what, that's what it means to, to be in ministry. It means to serve and to attend to the needs of others. And what Paul is saying here is that everybody is to do ministry. So pastors are to equip us for what? To do the works of ministry. The works of ministry that God has called us to do. The parts that we are indeed called to play. See, so often I think we can think of ministers as professionals. They're the professionals. And what the church does is they clap and applaud as the minister does his thing. Oh, it's great. It really, really helped. That was just wonderful. Well, that's not the case. Ministers in some ways are coaches. So, you know, you're the actors and I'm the prompter. I'm the equipper. I'm an individual that's going to help you to play your part for the kingdom of God in the building up of this local church. I'm not a professional. I'm an equipper. So who's in ministry in Sovereign Grace Church? Everybody. Everybody. Everybody's called to play a part. So don't get too upset with me when I say to you, you know what, I'm not able to do that. And you think, well, you've got to do that. You're a pastor. No, I'm a minister, same as you. We all just have different parts. But I'm to equip you to play a part in that equipping. Pastors are to equip pastors called by God, anointed by God, then fanned into flame and chosen by others, are to equip people for the works of ministry. You know, one of the things that I've so appreciated this week then, just chewing over this text, is, is what is then implied in verses 13 through 15, what is then implied about how the pastors kind of go about this? What are two of the things that pastors are to ensure that they are equipping folk in? How are they to go about this equipping process? You see, I think it's very easy when we hear that my pastor is to equip me for ministry to think that he's going to help me with my skill. <laughs> Not necessarily. I mean, I don't even play guitar. So Ben rocks up on the guitar. If Ben had that mindset that, you know what, you're, I, I read in my Bible, Ephesians 4, that you're going to equip me for ministry. Well, I think my ministry is through being a musician. And so if you, if you wouldn't mind helping me, well, Ben's going to be real upset because I can't even play. So ben, this isn't going to function very well. I have no skill when it comes to guitar. If Rhonda said, you know, I, I don't mind taking on the hospitality team, but I really need you to equip me for it in my skill, she's in a lot of trouble. Because if there's one, way, one place that your pastor should never be, it's that kitchen. I mean, it scares me. There's things that happen in there. You think, I have no idea what's happening in here. Catering. <laughs> it's, I, there's, there's, there is lack of gift beyond all belief within that zone. So I think the idea that pastors are to equip us in our God-given gift, it, it's very narrow if we think of that as just that skill. You might be lucky 
sovereignly lucky, and your pastor might be good at that skill. Well, but there might be a lot of things that your pastor's not good at. But I'll tell you what he is meant to do. According to verses 13 and 15, the implication is that my pastor is to help me in knowledge and he's to help me in character. See, verse 13a, Paul says, Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. See, it's not like we all have to agree on everything. There's loads of secondary matters that, you know, we, we need to be diverse in and that's okay. We don't all have to come out the same chopper because we're not the Borg. And so we may have lots of different parenting styles in this local church. That's okay. As long as we're shepherding a child's heart in a way that's helping them see the gospel, there's probably numerous ways of doing that. We don't all have to agree on exactly the same schooling. We don't have to agree on drinking, whether it's right or wrong. There's lots of issues that are very important secondary matters. But it is a pastor's job to ensure that we be united on the main matters, on the main thing. Because a body has to be unified. It has to stand for something and be clear on something as it moves forward. It's the pastor's job, by the grace of God, to encourage folk to unite around the Scriptures. The fact that this is God's Word and that it's useful and all we need for teaching and correction and reproof. It's the pastor's job to unite people around the character of God believing that he is good and he is merciful and he is gracious. And in particular, it is the pastor's job by the grace of God to build into people not only a unity of the faith, but a unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. It's that. It's the gospel. You have to be united around the gospel, otherwise churches begin to fragment, not around secondary issues, but around main issues. And there are some things we have to stand for as a family and say, look, You know, there's some things in in our church that are open hand, we can believe different things. Look, that's okay. But there's some things that are closed hand. The gospel is one of them. The fact that Jesus Christ came for sinners such as me, he died on the cross having lived a perfect life, he rose again and he now ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. We must unite in that. And it is a pastor's job to teach that, to use his gifts of teaching and preaching to build that into people by the grace of God and for his glory. It's also his job to build in character. It's in the second half of verse 13. It simply says, mature manhood. The pastor, by the grace of God, is to help people come to a place of mature manhood. You know, I was thinking about that this week. And just this whole idea of mature manhood, and just realizing, you know what, that doesn't just involve knowledge, does it? Maturity isn't just head knowledge. Maturity is heart. Maturity is character. It's our lives. It's who we are. And what Paul, I think, is helping us see is, you know what? It's important that pastors help that in a flock. So that as they seek to be diverse and use their gifts, he's uniting them around the gospel and he's uniting them around character, making sure character is important. See, for all those that might want to be pastors in the room, and there may be some, and God bless you, Here's the thing that I want you to understand above everything. Pastoral ministry is a character profession. That's what you see all the way through Scripture. So if you study 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, all the qualifications for pastor, and there are many, there's only one that relates into his gift. He says that he has to be able to teach. All the others talk about his character, his lifestyle, 
his marriage, who he is, how he's going to go about his life. Pastoral ministry is by nature a character profession. Not that they're perfect. Check me out. I, I am perfect. There's lots of things I need to grow in. There's lots of things I need to expediate and put to death and clothe myself in for the glory of God. Pastors aren't perfect. They're not Jesus. But nonetheless, they are called by God to be an example, as Paul says to Timothy, an example in speech, an example in conduct, an example in love, an example in faith, and an example in purity. Why is that? Why is Paul so keen on ensuring that pastors be men of character? Why is that? Here's why. Because they're to play a part within the unity of the church to build not only knowledge into people, but character. That's why we take so long to ordain people as pastors. Because it takes a long time to get to know people and to find out what they're really like and what they're really about. You know, I thank God that for the last 17 years of my life, I've had a pastor in Pete Greasley in Christchurch in Wales that has blessed my soul greatly. I thank God that he didn't just rock up on a Sunday and teach and then disappear for the rest of the time. But he helped to build structures that didn't just reflect knowledge, but reflected character. They reflected groups where we could grow in life, in our marriages, in our parenting, where we could be equipped for the task, not just through skill, but through lifestyle and character, where we could understand how the part that I'm playing in the church helps me understand what difference that makes in the gospel, what that makes in the whole. I thank God for being pastored in a way that didn't just provoke knowledge, but provoke character. And I trust that I'm able to be that type of pastor to you. So what has Paul helped us see? He's helped us to see that everyone has a gift. They're many and varied. He's helped us to see that how those gifts are developed, namely our pastors are called to equip the saints, to equip us for the work of ministry. What's the point? (laughs) What's the purpose? Well, that's point three, the purpose of the diverse gifts. And he crescendos it really well in verse 15. He says, rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And here in verses 15 and 16, Paul uses a wonderful metaphor of a body to describe the local church. I reckon it's such a helpful metaphor. And it's such a helpful metaphor really for two reasons. The first reason is that it helps us see in in a very visual pictorial way how diversity within unity actually works. I mean, think about it. I have a body. It's not great, but it's all I've got. You know, you've got to work with what you've got, and, and this is it. And I have a body, and as I was thinking about my body this week, I, I was thinking, you know, I'm grateful for my body in two ways. I'm grateful that within my body there is unity. I'm grateful that I don't arrive any given morning. I don't wake up on a Monday morning, and the first thing I see as I open my eyes is not my finger that has detached itself from the body and is letting me know it's leaving home. You know, that, that's not what happens. I mean, imagine it. You wake up in the morning, your, your eyes open up, and there he is looking at you, and he's, he's there, and he's, he's clearly disconnected himself, and he's just letting you know, now I've come to an age, and uh, being 35 myself, as are you, I've decided that I can, I'm probably able now to, to move on and, 
and, and lash out by myself. I mean, I can crawl, I can point, I can scratch. There's a lot of things that I can do that I, I just don't feel you're appreciating. So thank you for everything, but I'm on my way. Praise God that that's not the case. You know, my body is united. We stand together. There are many parts in my body, but we are united and we all do things together. That's part of the fun of it. We stick together. We're a body. We work in unity. But I also thank God that my body is very diverse. My body is not just filled with hands because that would be awkward. I'm grateful to God for my heart. I'm grateful to God that my heart keeps pumping, which keeps me alive. But you know what? When my ear needs scratching, my heart isn't much help in that moment. It, it can't do much. It's not just leaping from my body and itching my ear. It, it can't do this. I need my hand. I need my finger to play its part. I love the fact that my ears are helping me listen, but they're not very helpful when I, get, when I want to get somewhere. You, know, you don't just lie on the floor and pull yourself along by your ears. This isn't going to work. My body is very diverse. And so it's such a clever metaphor that Paul's using, isn't it? A body. A body is in unity. It is together. But it's very diverse. It plays lots of different parts so that the body can move forward. I think it's a very clever metaphor for that reason. But I also think it's a clever metaphor because it helps us see the purpose of the diverse gifts. And that's this. Maturity. The purpose of these diverse gifts that we see in 15 and 16 is so that as we play our part, that we build up. We grow up. We grow up into our head, into Christ. We become Jesus Christ. We reflect Jesus Christ all the more as we grow up together in our body. You know, when I was a child, and you often hear people say it today, you hear children say, when I grow up, I want to be like whoever. When I grow up, I want to be like my dad. When I grow up, I want to be like Michael Jackson. Whoever it is, and you fill in the blank, there's lots of different things that people insert there. And sometimes then as an adult, we say it too, don't we? As a sign of affection, as a sign of respect to an individual, just as we want to honor them. You know, when I grew up, I want to be like you. I want to be like you in that, in that way that you deal with those things in your life, in your character. Well, what Paul is simply saying to us here is, listen, as you serve in your distinct gifts, in your diverse gifts, in the context of unity in the body, when you grow up, here's who you want to be like, Jesus Christ. That needs to be the battle cry of Sovereign Grace Church Sydney. When we grow up, we want to be like Jesus. Not just as individuals, but corporately as a body. See, where are people meant to see Jesus Christ in this city? Well, they're meant to see him through local churches, through bodies. Bodies whom he is the head, but nonetheless that body is called to reflect Jesus Christ by linking arms and doing life together in patience and in gentleness and in forbearance and in all humility, serving with their different gifts, utilizing all the different spoils of the king that he has lavished upon them in the context of unity so that as this body begins to function and operate, not only in the context of the four walls of a Sunday morning, but on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday and a Thursday, out in our communities... People see Jesus. They see his body. They see his hands. They see his feet. They see his heart. How are they meant to see that? Well, they're meant to see it through the local church. And so the question that in some ways Paul leaves us with then is, well, what type of body do they see through you? Is it an obsolete one? I.e. they never see it. 
is it an immature one? So as they interact with your local church, what they see is bickering and gossip and arguing and lack of unity and it's not attractive? Or is it a mature one? People who are united in their diversity and are seeking to help each other grow and mature, helping to each other to build themselves up so they may play the part in the body for the purpose of maturity. What is it that they see? Paul is eager that they see maturity. So diversity within unity is absolutely vital. But it's vital because it leads to maturity. And it's a mature Jesus Christ that we are called by the grace of God to reveal to our city. So how do we apply it? Well, three things quick. They're just one-liners. Number one, we thank God for the diverse gifts that the other parts around us bring to the whole. We thank God for the diverse gifts that the other parts around us bring to the whole. Listen, we're all very different. That's the point. And I think there can be a temptation sometimes to then get frustrated with people's differences. I think, why do they have to be so different? And so we can be an ear. We can be an individual who's very good at hearing. The problem is the doers, the guy who is the feet, just keeps getting frustrated with the hearer because he says, all you want to do is listen. We've got to get on. We've got to be feet. And the ear says, well, hang on a minute. No, we've got to listen. We've got to take it on board. And then the heart steps in and says, no, it's not about just hearing and doing. It's about feeling, man. It's about caring. We need to care for people well. So the guy who's the feet says, it isn't about caring. We've just got to get on and take the gospel out. At which point the ear says, hang on, you need to listen to him. And it just gets very complicated. We need to be aware that we don't need to be frustrated with each other. We need to thank God for each other. Recognizing, no, we're different. And we are deliberately different. We are deliberately diverse so that as we all come together in unity, we all play our part for the building of the local church and for the maturity of the church so that people may see Jesus. Number two, we humbly and joyfully play our parts for the glory of God. You've all got a part to play. I don't know what your part is. Maybe you don't know what your part is. Maybe you're an individual who has a wonderful ability to encourage and support. You find it very natural to come up to people and encourage them and stand with them and support them as they go through trials or even if they don't, and you're just encouraging them. And what they do, maybe you have a heart for the unloved in our society in an unusual way. You feel burdened for them. Maybe disabled folk or whoever it be that you just think, man, I feel, I feel burdened for them. I, I go to sleep at night and I'm thinking about them. Maybe you're an individual who has a perseverance and patience in just doing the mundane. And it's nothing for you to rock up at 8.30 on a Sunday morning and help unload the trailer and do all the different things and you just find a great joy in that. Well, that's, that's probably a spiritual gift. That's something that God's called you to. You know, Maybe you're already using those gifts in the context of a local church. Thank you if you are. Thank you for playing your part in the building of this body. Keep doing it. Or maybe you're not. Maybe there's something that you're feeling, man, I'd love to be able to do this, but I, I, I can't or I'm not. Well, let us know. Let me know or let one of your life group leaders know if there's something you think, oh, I'd love to be able to use this gift. That's an invitation to you to do that. It's not a guarantee that you'll be doing it. Because sometimes we need to be helped with what we think we'd like to do. Sometimes it's just a timing issue. And you know what? We want to be able to do that. But right now we're less than half a year old. 
And probably that needs to bring into place when we're five. And so we need to be patient. We're going to have to take some time on this. Sometimes in reality as well, we're just not gifted at what we think we are. Watch Australian Pop Idol. You need, I am an amazing singer. But you're like, oh my gosh. Sometimes we need somebody to be honest and say, you know what? Thank you, but I don't think we need another guitarist right now. Don't humbly and joyfully play our parts. And then number three, finally, we caringly pray for our pastor. I nearly left this one out, but to do so would just be proud. If it is true that I am called to equip you for the works of ministry, then here's what you need to understand. There's a lot of eyes looking back at me right now, and there's only one set of eyes this end. I need your prayer, and I need your help. When Charles Haddon Spurgeon was once chatting to a delegation of American pastors, they were visiting him, and they said, you know what, how is it that your ministry is so successful? How, how is that, and why is that? What is the secret to some of these things? And so Mr. Spurgeon led these American pastors by the hand just downstairs into the room actually underneath the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And right there, there was over 400 people praying that moment for Mr. Spurgeon's sermon that night. It wasn't even nighttime yet, but they're there crying out to God for him as their pastor and crying out to God that God would give him the ability to share boldly and well. And Mr. Spurgeon, as he pulled the door open, said to these men, he said, there, gentlemen, is the secret for God's blessing his work here. The Apostle Paul himself, a man of deep prayer, knew the unrivaled effectiveness of prayer in ministry. He begged the church to pray for him. I urge you, brothers, that you join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Their pastor knows it is only through earnest, strategic prayer that I will be an effective minister in the hands of God. He, like Paul, urges them to pray for him, for his personal needs, for his family, and for wisdom and power as he oversees the flock of God. I'm not asking for 400 people to pray for me before I preach. But I'd love you to pray for me. I need it. Your pastor, if there's one thing he does bring to the party, it's a lot of need. I need grace. I need wisdom. I need strength. I need energy. I want to equip you well. But I need his help to do so. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that unity does not mean uniformity. Lord, it's so encouraging as we come to your word, as we discover that church isn't about conformity. It's not about sameness. It's about glorying in difference, enjoying one another's differences, our different likes, our different dislikes, our different hopes, our different gifts. And allowing those gifts to then function for the building up of the body. Lord, you have given us, as a local church, a fine body. You've blessed us. You've given us grace that it would have barely been imaginable a year ago. And so, Lord, would you equip me to equip the saints for the work of ministry? Lord, aid me in this task. And Lord, aid them then to do the task. Lord, ministers equip, and then people minister. Lord, give us all grace. Would we all play our part? And would you, Jesus, 
be seen ever more clearly in our communities, in our towns, and in your city for your glory. Amen.